welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name's Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, for coming back. First-time listeners, so glad you found the show. Uh, regular listeners, thanks so much for your continued support. It really does mean the world to me. Uh, it, it's it's very important, I think, to maintain these spaces that we have on the left, in the alternative media, uh, providing the kind of critical analysis that we need. There's, you know, I, I know I say this every week, uh, every episode, but there really does feel like so much going on in the world. It's difficult to keep up and it's difficult to trust a lot of the news sources, even some of which which we've grown to trust over the years. Um, and I think the counterpunch in that regard really sets itself apart. Uh, if you look at the counterpunch on any given day, there's a wide range of views. There's a wide range of analysis of, of subjects and stuff, but it's really, I think, focused on providing that critical perspective. I really respect the site. I really respect the publication, the print magazine. And if you do as well, I would really urge you to support Counterpunch by getting a subscription to the print magazine. It's a great way to support the project and get something out of it. Of course, the website on an everyday on an everyday basis. If you want to donate, you can use the PayPal feature. You can uh, call Becky at the Counterpunch office in California. Whatever you want to do, uh, it's greatly appreciated. And I think it it really is important uh, in these times. So um, with that being said, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very excited to have him on the show to talk about uh, what I think is a really important subject, one that is of particular relevance to those of us in uh, the United States and in North America, but really it has to some degree global implications. And I'm very pleased to be able to welcome uh, onto the show John Ackerman. Uh, We're going to be talking a lot about Mexican politics, the upcoming elections, and a whole lot more. Uh, Dr. Ackerman is a researcher and activist. He's at the Institute for Legal Research at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. He is the editor-in-chief of the Mexican Law Review and a columnist at Proceso Magazine and a contributor to La Jornada newspaper. His work has appeared all over the place, New York Times, Atlantic, many other publications. Follow him on Twitter at John M. Ackerman and on Facebook at Dr. John M. Ackerman. John Ackerman, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks for coming on. Thanks to Eric. A pleasure to be with you. And it, it, it really is, I think, a, a critical subject to understand, especially, uh, you know, not only for those of us in the United States, but really those of us who follow Latin America and uh, the, the evolution of the political landscape in our region. So really, that's kind of where I want to center our discussion today. So can we just begin before we get into that, if you could give us just a very brief overview of your background, how you came to work in, in Mexico City at the university and what your interest is in the subject. Yeah, well, I'm an expatriate. I'm happy to be so. I've lived here in Mexico for um, decades. Uh, very happy to not have to have Trump as my president. Well, you know, I guess I, I, he still is technically my president, even though I live outside of the country, but I'm a Mexican national now, too, citizen. And I'm very excited because this uh, um, upcoming elections in Mexico um, might mean a, a major um, political transformation. Uh, which, as you said, Eric, could um, send, I think, shockwaves, positive shockwaves throughout the the world. Uh, I've lived in Mexico for the last, I don't even know, okay, I've lost count, you know, 25 years. Um, I'm a professor at the National Autonomous University. I teach law. Um, I write uh, academic stuff on you know, political science and public administration. Um, but I'm also a, a journalist and uh, one of those, you know, dying breeds of, you know, academics who are also participating in the in the journalist world uh, in, in the U.S. We have some of those in Mexico. It's a it's a long, a long tradition, and it's been a real pleasure to to, to form a part of that here in Mexico. And 
And great to talk to you, Eric. Um, wonderful that you guys are, are, are paying attention to, to the politics south of the border, not just the, the violence and the death and the migrants, which is are also very important um, topics, but um, we're on the verge of a very important political change. Indeed. And uh, I have to say that um, uh, not to toot our, our horn here at Counterpunch and Counterpunch Radio, but we've done a number of episodes on Mexico. We've been very privileged to have Laura Carlson on this show numerous times to talk about a variety of issues. And I'm very happy to have you because, like you just said, it really does have a, a, a ripple effect throughout the region, certainly throughout the Americas, but I think maybe even broader than that. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the regional issues in the second half of our conversation, but let's let's ground ourselves in the recent developments and, and understanding the political landscape today as uh, Mexico continues in this uh, presidential campaign. So tell us a little bit about who the candidates are. Let's, you know, focusing on, let's say, the top uh, three most important candidates. And uh, specifically, uh, let's get a good portrait of the front runner. Uh, tell us who he is and why he is such a target for his opponents. So Lopez Obrador, who's Andrés Manuel Lopez Obrador, who's is the head of the polls, he's been the opposition candidate uh, now three times. Uh, he contended in 2006, in 2012. Uh, in 2006, there was a, a brutal, obvious, uh, transparent fraud against him. In 2012, it was pretty much of a fraud as well. It just happened through different channels. It wasn't only through you know a, a manipulating vote counting, but also through uh, incredible amounts of money coming in through offshore accounts um, related to you know, petroleum companies and others, which uh, um, violated, of course, Mexican laws and infiltrated into the, the elections in 2012. And so basically, Peña Nieto you know, bought his election in 2012, uh, also against Lopez Obrador. So this is his third time around. Lopez Obrador is an incredibly popular politician. Um, he's not a populist. I wouldn't use that term to talk to him. Some people use populism in a, in a positive way. And of course, in U.S. history itself, there's a uh, uh, historical uh, positive use of, of populism itself at the end of the 19th century. But the way in which populism is used today as a term is normally used to you know, disqualify, uh, um, talk about a leader as a, you know authoritarian, personalistic, um, uh, 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 aggressive kind of politician. Lopez Obrador has, has none of those qualities. He's uh, uh, very down-to-earth, humble. Yes, he's on the left, but he's very much moderated some of that ideology. We can talk about that a little later if you want to, but he's very much kind of a down-to-earth uh, um, leader who's very popular among Mexicans, whose um, top uh, um, points in his plan campaign plank are, you know, fighting corruption, uh, fighting poverty, inequality, um, ending the drug war, uh, uh, bringing back uh, Mexican economy and not just sort of selling everything out to the United States. Um, those would be sort of his central uh, points. Uh, he's in some ways similar to Bernie Sanders, uh, um, other Latin American leaders, perhaps uh, um, Jose Mujica in Uruguay. He's actually very good friends with Jeremy Corbyn in, in, in England. So, you know, that's the kind of the school of thought and practice that he is in. He's, he's 65 years old, so he's not a young guy, but he has a lot of the support of the, the millennials, right? The youth, uh, the, the, the YouTubers and the Internet hawks are are out there supporting Lopez Obrador. So that's an interesting um, twist as well, kind of like Bernie Sanders, you know, someone who's been in politics for a long time, but is still very much considered an outsider and has lots of support from the youth. 
So since you mentioned it, I guess now would be a good time to talk a little bit more about the class nature of uh, uh, Lopez Obrador's base. Lopez Obrador is uh, quite quite famously known as uh, by the initials AMLO. So for people who might be coming across it in, in news articles and so forth, AMLO is who we're talking about, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. AMLO, AMLO that's how it's pronounced yeah. here. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly, AMLO. So, um, so the, question, the question that I have is about the class nature of his base. You, we know, as you just mentioned, that there are millennials, internet savvy, so we're really talking of the middle classes that have gravitated towards his campaign. But uh, tell us a little bit also about the working class and, some, and, and the poor and how they identify with his campaign and why. Yeah, it's very much of a, a, a broad coalition that's supporting Lopez Obrador. He has, uh, it's funny, there's this sort of disconnect between he's normally thought of as, you know, this uh, more of a populist, quote unquote, politician who's closer to the poor and the downtrodden and the, and the south of the country. Uh, um, but actually, his, as we're saying, his, his, his demographic base is actually in the cities with the middle class and the youth. Um, but he also, of course, does have lots of support in uh, among peasants, among workers, and and in the south of the country, Mexico is very much a regionalized country, as most countries, the United States is too, south and north. Uh, and uh, the 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 difficult thing about the working class vote or the poor vote is that a large amount of those votes are often um, either through threats or through incentives, uh, vote buying. Um, pushed towards the the pre the, the old authoritarian party, which is very much a clientelistic corporatist party. Um, they still get a big stake of um, the working class vote, the poorest vote in the in the country, because they're the people who are most vulnerable and are often most uh, um, easily manipulated by um, this you know machine politics of corruption. And so, uh, even though Lopez is very popular among those groups as well, often. Um, those groups will actually vote for the right-wing party. The PRI, even though it's supposedly the Resolutionary Party, has a right-wing platform. And so that's how things started to get confusing in in Mexico. And that's one of the reasons why Lopez Obrador has had to sort of shift ideologically towards the center because, you know, the real kind of pocket of free votes that he can compete for tend to be in the north um, and in these urban areas. Um, and uh, in the poorer areas, it's often... Um, harder to to increase his his support because of um, this machine control. Although once again, he is. I think he's he, right, right now. The polls are demonstrating he is. You know, across the board, uh, um, way ahead independently of what sector or what area of the of the country you're talking about. Uh, and he's definitely on the left. He doesn't like to use left anymore. Like any many other politicians, you know, Paul Demos doesn't like to use left anymore either. Um, I personally, you know, like the word left and I think he should be using it because um, in the end his policies are left wing. But um, given the dominant discourse today in Mexico and the world, um, he's he's stepped aside from saying that he's a leftist. He talks about more, you know, progressiveness, um, being honest, uh, um, strengthening institutions, uh, um, putting Mexico back on its feet. Um, it's more of that kind of platform. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the uh, interesting things that I've noted in, in doing research about uh, the campaign is that a lot of those pockets in the in the poorer areas that have been typically targeted by the right wing for vote buying and, and uh, you know, various forms of election rigging, it seems that there is an increased sentiment even in those areas to come out and to genuinely vote for the only authentic candidate, mainly, you know, Lopez Obrador, that there is a sense that uh, for the first time, 
time, maybe in generations, that their votes actually matter. Do you get a sense that uh, the people who have maybe traditionally been marginalized politically, that they're increasingly feeling that they have a stake in this election? That's the impression. We'll see what actually happens. You know, I mean, it, it, we'll, we'll, we'll know soon <laughs> on July 1st. This is just a, a week away. Uh, that's the impression. One gets this hope that um, uh, precisely in the end, we do have um, good laws, electoral laws. Supposedly, the vote is is secret, although often people are you know, forced or encouraged to take a picture with their cell phone of their ballot and then you know cast that in to the local political boss. But theoretically, you, know, you can go and vote in secret. Uh, and so there could be a sort of this silent rebellion of these you know, more vulnerable sectors of society who are used to sort of caving in to the PRI or forced to cave in to the PRI. But now with this expectation that Lopez Obrador might actually win, uh, maybe they might just throw off those shackles and vote for him massively because the the, the pressure only really works when um, uh, the voters are convinced that in the end, independently of what they do, uh, the pre will continue in power, of course, right? So, because, you know, so if they vote against the pre, they'll be punished by the pre in government. And if they vote for the pre, they'll be uh, um, rewarded by this government. But if suddenly, which is happening, and the polls are showing this, people suddenly expect the pre to lose, or the pan as well, which is the same thing, um, then all of a sudden they might feel this kind of sense of freedom and vote their conscience. Um, it certainly looks like that might happen. The polls are incredible. I mean, Lopez Obrador is two to one over the second place um, candidate. He's got he's between he's polling between fifty and fifty five percent of the of the vote. Second place is you know the highest number I've seen for Anaya, who's the panista, you know, that, the, the really right wing party, uh, um, is around you know twenty five percent. I mean, and and Mead, which is the pre candidate, is polling around an eighteen twenty percent. So. You know, it's looking good. It's looking good. But we can't count our chickens before they're hatched. Definitely. Absolutely. And uh, just the final the final point I want to just make about uh, the campaign and ask you uh, about it is the the question of uh, corruption. It seems that corruption has really been made a central plank in uh, AMLO's uh, campaign. He talks about it seemingly ad nauseum because it's such an important issue in Mexico, given everything that's happened over the last decade or two. Uh, can you talk a little bit about a what he says about corruption and the promises that he makes? And then B, can you give us, uh, those of us outside of Mexico, an understanding of the scope and scale of the corruption issue? Well, let's start with that last point. The scope and scale of corruption is enormous. Uh, um, there you know, all sorts of ways of looking at it. Um, Global Financial in- Integrity Index. Um, Mexico is the third country in the world which contributes to illegal international financial flows after Indian Russia, after China and Russia, sorry. Uh, because, of course, of narco-trafficking, but not just because of narco-trafficking, also because of money laundering and because of corruption and um, because of uh, all sorts of, uh, of uh, irregular financial dealings in Mexico. Um, in terms of government, more strictly itself, uh, we have a dozen uh, governors who have been accused of, and many of them, more than half of them, are in jail because of corruption, embezzlement, uh, or organized crime charges. Uh, most of these are from the PRI, which is Enrique Peña Nieto's party, the old guard um, authoritarian uh, party. Uh, the, the numbers are insane, you know, I mean, millions and millions of, of dollars which have been embezzled by these guys over the last um, few years. Uh, money that's come, that were supposed to be spent on universities, on social programs, uh, on all sorts of 
of uh, you know the infrastructure projects like you know the highways in the state of Mexico. Um, privatization itself has been taken advantage of as, uh, in order to you know pass public rents into private hands and to uh, um, uh, you know Peso Peña Nieto has all two or three you know favorite contractors who are building all of his highways and roads and and then kicking back a lot of that money into his. Uh, um, his own pockets or his friends' pockets or directly into electoral spending to buy votes in this kind of vicious cycle. Um, so things are really kind of out of control. And the president himself has been accused of, you know, his, yeah, he lives in this mansion, which was supposedly donated to his wife um, by one of these contractors itself. Uh, and that's just the corruption side. The other side of the collapse of institutions in Mexico has to do with the violence. So, you know, we have over 350,000 you know, violent homicides of the last um, 11 years or the last two sexenios, um, the presidential terms, um, 35,000 disappeared. Um, we have constant massacres um, committed by the government. The disappearance of uh, the 43 students uh, from Ayotzinapa, this has still not been cleared up. This is now almost four years ago. We still don't know uh, where the kids are, nor who did it. I mean, you know, we have some low-level policemen in jail, but um, who the masterminds behind the situation are still um, totally unknown. The, the suspicion is there was military, but we don't know that. Uh, and so uh, human rights is out of control. Um, censorship has also been very serious. You know, leading journalists have been assassinated or simply been kicked out of their programs and not rehired by any of the private channels. We supposedly have you know, private media. So that makes Mexico, you know, a free country compared to other countries, which are all public media or state controlled media. But actually, our private television channels are more state controlled than, than most places. They get incredible amounts of money from the federal budget for supposedly advertising expenses, which is but they're basically corrupt payments from the government to these television channels. So, you know, this is really, you know, my last book was called The Myth of Democratic Transition. So Mexico is not a democracy yet. Um, the hope is that you know, if, if enough people come out to vote on July 1st, it'll be so large the support for Lopez Obrador that the, the these corrupt institutions and politicians are not going to be able to stop it, stop it from th this change from happening. But um, we'll see. <laughs> Indeed, we will. Now, uh, the question uh, to me in any election scenario, and you know, maybe I'm betraying some of my Marxist uh, you know ideology here, but. Um, I want to know what capital wants. I want to know where capital is lining up and how capital is responding to this. Uh, well, I, I suppose for some of them, at least, probably a political crisis or, a, uh, you know, a doomsday scenario. But I want you to explain to us a little bit about how capital is responding to this election. Have they united behind one of uh, AMLO's uh, opponents? Are they kind of split between the two right wing factions? Are there some elements of capital that think that maybe Obrador might be beneficial to them. How do you read Capital's response to this? I think we have an interesting situation in terms of the the, the division of precisely the the, the alliances of the, of the of the capitalist class or the oligarchy in in Mexico. We do have a, a clear division, I think, in three ways. Uh, this is new and different. That's why suddenly we have uh, a hopeful political context because over the last thirty years. We've had a, a, you know, basically a consensus around neoliberal policies and around the neoliberal class structure. Uh, Mexico has been the only country, except for Colombia and all of Latin America, which has not even been experimented with a, you know, a, a left wing or a pseudo left wing or kind of left wing government. Um, throughout Latin America, there's been all different kinds of 
of, of, of experimentation in this way of the, you know, the pink tide. Uh, but in Mexico, Colombia as well, we haven't had any kind of experimentation or transition in that way. Uh, and that's because of, of, you know, sort of this unity on the right. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, we have a disunity. Uh, this is very surprising. So the right has has put forth these two candidates, right? The PAN has a candidate and the PRI has a candidate. Well, in the last two elections, this has happened as well. But usually a few months before the election, in 2006, for instance, the uh, the, the PRI stepped down in support of the PAN candidate in 2012. Not, they didn't literally step down. They still they were still on the ballot, but it was very obvious that they were had to sort of shift their alliances to support uh, one person. And in 2012, it was the PAN that that stepped down their campaign and decided to support the the PRI with Peña Nieto. But here, up to the wire, the the PAN and the PRI candidates um, continue to fight amongst each other. Just the last debate, the third debate, they spent as much or perhaps even more time fighting amongst each other than attacking. Lopez Obrador. And so that's a, a definitely something new about the political conjuncture. And on the other hand, yes, there is there is definitely a fraction of um, the capitalist class in Mexico, which is supporting Lopez Obrador. They are also fed up with um, violence, with the destruction of institutions, with the destruction of, you know, the basic liberal order, which they need for um, their to do business. Uh, um, the PRI and the PAN have been bad even at that, at, at you know, administrating uh, you know the, the the interests of the, the ruling class, and so uh, um, you know, so even even a important group of them is, is willing to try on Lopez Obrador, and Lopez Obrador is, is is welcoming the support and moderating his message. So, uh, um, so this is definitely an interesting um, political conjunction we're going through today, and uh, it'll be, as I'm painting the story to, it'll be very interesting or even more interesting afterwards if Lopez Obrador wins. Um, how things are going to play out. Um, is going to be uh, not at all easy to uh, to, to predict at this moment. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, just to finish up that point, um, Mexico has seen the introduction of a number of um, privatization initiatives or quote unquote reforms, uh, you know, all under the sort of broad heading of kind of uh, neoliberal ideology. So the question really is, what of those privatization reforms, given a, a scenario in which Lopez Obrador becomes president of the country? I mean, we saw just in the last few years, major social upheaval over things like uh, increasing the cost of fuel, over subsidies, over the privatizing of education and other nationalized institutions and things like that. So how do we, what should we expect uh, of those quote unquote reforms in an AMLO scenario? Well, the reform, you know, the the biggest privatization reform of this recently years has been the oil um, privatization. Uh, although, like I said, we've been stuck with neoliberal policies for the last uh, 30 years. Uh, and so uh, one by one, we've been privatizing industry after an industry, um, destroying unions. So, for instance, you know, the, the strong electoral workers union in the center of the country uh, was destroyed by, by Calderon, literally just sort of disappeared, wiped off the map. It was one of the most important uh, unions in Mexico with a long revolutionary and, and activist um, heritage of the, the, the SME. And so, you know, Lopez Obrador, if he uh, arrives in government, is going to find uh, a government in, or, you know, a social situation, um, which is very uh, complicated. And he's going to have to try to try to pick up the, uh, the pieces. Uh, and that's going to be one of the big the big challenges for his his government. I think I'm, I'm losing myself. What was the specific question? 
I was I was really just asking of how how we should or how we should expect uh, Lopez oh, Obrador to, to address the privatization right. just, uh, of those industries. Okay, good, good. good. I, well, I sidetracked to the unions and I started getting lost. Yes, well, the privatization. So, but but if you actually look at the law, right, at the Constitution, we still have uh, uh, the Constitution of 1917, which was Mexico's revolutionary constitution. Uh, you know, the Constitution, which wasn't literally written by Zapata and Villa, they were excluded from the Constitution, the Constituent Assembly, but they were, you know, armed and dangerous and in the streets uh, while that Constitution was being written in 1916, 1917. And uh, the framers uh, were very aware of this and made a, a very deliberate effort to satisfy popular um, demands. And so um, even with these privatizing reforms over the last um, 20 years, they have not changed the roots of uh, uh, Mexicans constitution, Mexico's constitution and its constitutional heritage, which still is, I, I wouldn't dare to say socialist, although perhaps you might want to use that word. I mean, it's, 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 it's very much committed to the social good and the public good. So, for instance, Article 27 of the Constitution, the first line of Article 7, still says that, you know, all the tierras de yaguas, all of the land and waters of Mexico um, um, uh, belong originally, our property originally, of the nation. We have a, a concept of collective property ownership um, in which you know private property is a result of the action of the state and the laws, which then you know hands it over to individuals. But private property is by no means understood as in this Lockean kind of individualist, originalist um, um, perspective of the Mexican Constitution, but to the contrary, the collective good is placed in the first place. Article 123 says that every Mexican has a right to work. Um, not only any kind of work, the right to a dignified and socially useful work. This is the first line of Article 123 of the Constitution. And so, you know, there's still all of these, and that's just the beginning. It's a long Constitution with a long tradition of, of social justice built into the law. And so, you know, it's there. Um, even the oil privatization of, of Peña Nieto didn't really get to the roots of this problem. All it did was basically open the door for a neoliberal government to start privatizing oil if they wanted to. But if you get a non-neoliberal government, you know, progressive government like Lopez Obrador, the Constitution is also ready to be used for social justice. So uh, um, I don't think there's any sort of significant legal obstacles to Lopez Obrador actually making some um, fundamental change. It's going to depend on, you know, uh, international and local political and economic pressures, of course. Uh, and we'll see how the, the Trump factor plays into this, uh, you know. Uh, so far, it's you know, ironically, paradoxically, not happily, but it has um, it had a positive impact in Mexico in terms of the fact, Mexican politics, in terms of fact, making people you know, wake up to the idea that you know we need to start defending our interests. Uh, Obama was very smooth and you know fooled so many people, both in the United States and Mexico, that you know with this sort of brunt, br brute kind of force coming from from Trump that's sort of shaken up Mexico and woke, woken it up. But that's been the good effect. But then. You know, it could also, of course, have lots of negative effects in, in terms of the economy and the, and the direct uh, um, you know, uh, impact on the migrants, of course, like we're saying today with the children. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, we got to take a break. But before we do, I, I got to get one quick final question in about uh, AMLO and, and his base. There, uh, You mentioned earlier in our conversation how uh, Mexico, like the United States and many other countries, is is very regionalized and how the different regions of the country really represent different uh, class bases, but also different uh, economic sectors and so forth. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between AMLO's base in the South, which, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is typified by more rural agricultural 
rural-based economy, peasant economy, and so forth, versus the north closer to the U.S. border. How are those areas different economically, and how does uh, AMLO approach those areas differently? Yes, well, we'll observe that it's from the south. He's from the state of Tabasco, uh, which is uh, southeast of uh, of the country. Uh, He is, uh, the southern country is, you know, uh, where all vast majority of the indigenous populations live. Um, Yes, it's more rural, more lush, more um, rich in natural resources. Uh, uh, This is the sort of Mayan territory throughout, you know, Chiapas and, and the Yucatan. Uh, um, this is uh, uh, very diverse, both in terms of human history and cultures, and, and in terms of uh, natural resources and just you know animal life and biodiversity. Uh, uh, it's the also the place which is, of course, the uh, least uh, wealthiest, the most uh, having the largest amount of natural and human wealth and resources. It's uh, ironically, although this is true globally in many places. Uh, it's the most poor uh, in terms of economic uh, development. Uh, the North is, you know, the opposite. It's much more desert, uh, much more agribusiness, uh, maquiladoras, much more closer to the, the United States economy, but still very dependent. You know, the North um, benefits from its closeness to the United States, but not as much as it should, right? So the maquilas uh, um, really, you know, only you know trickle down to the, the Mexican economy and these um, low low level wages, and and there's not a whole lot of you know forward and backward linkages towards the the Mexican economy there. It's just sort of the U.S. companies coming in and and using cheap Mexican labor and much of the labor actually which works at on these at these maquiladoras in the north come from the south, of course. So you have the sort of internal colonialism and migration as well. Uh, and so it's a complex situation. Lopsorador has normally been seen as, you know, and the South also, you know, there's a long tradition of, you know, of political consciousness and social movements and, and mobilization. So, you know, Oaxaca and Chiapas and Guerrero, uh, Tabasco as well, all these states are you know, real sort of hotbeds for social movements and political consciousness and, and, you know, social capital, if you want to call that, or, you know, there's much more community integration and political consciousness there. So, uh, um, that has been his, sort of his natural home through Lopsorador. But the North is it also has its his, its rebellious spirit, um, and and that's the really the, the new thing about this game, man. Is they they have embraced Lopsorador, and Lopsorador has embraced them as well, uh, and and that's been a a, a, a very interesting uh, phenomenon for this campaign. Indeed. All right. So let's take a quick break. And um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about Trump, but I want to talk about some of the other issues uh, at stake in this election, including some that uh, you mentioned uh, in your previous comments. And then also I want to broaden our conversation to the regional perspective, because I think Mexico really does figure quite centrally in a lot of developments going on throughout Latin America. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. I'll continue the conversation with John Ackerman. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Anti-Christ, they anti-social point MC. 
Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with John Ackerman. I highly recommend you follow his work. At, uh, follow him on Twitter at John M. Ackerman. Uh, so, John, before the before the break, we were kind of delving deeply into uh, you know uh, Lopez Obrador's class support, uh, the regional uh, breakdown of Mexico vis-a-vis the election. But now I want to talk a little bit, if we could, about some of the other issues uh, that really. Uh, not only are are important in Mexico, but I guess what I'm getting at is to what extent do they figure in the campaign rhetoric? You mentioned Ayotzinapa as a reminder for listeners that is uh, the disappearance of uh, 43 school teachers and educators that remains, well, quote unquote, unsolved, although there have been multiple inquiries into that. Uh, cartel violence, many other issues that factor into this that go well beyond just the economics. So can you can you talk a little bit about his, uh, Lopez Obrador's uh, vision, say, for uh, uh, curbing cartel violence and curbing the drug war, because in the research that I've done, it, that's one area where he really, I, at least from what I've read, hasn't fully articulated a policy vision in the way that he has for some other issues. Am I totally off base with that? Well, actually, the, the, he had been a little abstract about this for a while, but in November, December, he, he started to really fix a good, uh, interesting, at least, uh, uh, position on this. He, he's uh, his proposal is to uh, um, move from a situation of uh, war, you know, we're in a, it's dangerous sometimes to use that term because, you know, we're not, it's, it's wrong to talk about a, you know, a war on drugs, of course. Um, but in fact, what has happened is that Calderon, president from 2006, 2012, and Peña Nieto have basically declared a war on drugs. And this has created a, the situation of mass violence and a kind of civil war, very much decentralized, um, which has led to all these deaths, you know, 350,000 deaths over the last um, 12 years, 11, 12 years. Uh, and so what Lopez Obrador said, you know, well, uh, this has not worked, of course, the the idea of fighting fire with fire, uh, you know, the Merida plan, bringing in Black Hawk helicopters, um, you know, knocking off the kingpins of the drug cartels throughout Mexico. This has just created more violence. And, uh, you know, kind of a, a arms race between the drug cartels and the government itself. So we need to really sort of cut through this and move on to a different equilibrium. And so Lopes Obrador has now started to talk since from November and December. He's been very much criticized for this by some groups of uh, politicians, particularly his, you know, Naya and me, the, the, the ones from the Pan of the Parade, but even civil society in general. He's now started to talk about, uh, um, you know, constructing peace through one, he's used the term amnesty, and two, he's, he has used the term of transitional justice. Right? 
he hasn't gone so far to talk about legalizing drugs, although he has said that this is uh, on the table. He's willing to talk, you know, consult with the Mexican population about this. Uh, you know, uh, opinion, public opinion is not quite, you know, there yet in Mexico, at least. Uh, but talking about amnesty, talking about transitional justice has, you know, created a whole maelstrom of, of debate because uh, what this means is that, you know, he wants to, you know, beat the narcos and the organized crime uh, kingpins uh, out for their own base of support, right? So he wants to give amnesty to, you know, the millions of youth and peasants who are today uh, um, tied up with the drug trade, with uh, organized crime. Um, one could argue, you know, obliged to do so because they have no other way to survive other than migrating to the United States. And now with Trump, that's more difficult. So, you know, they're trapped in poverty. The government is corrupt, neoliberal, doesn't give them any support. So the only place they have to go is to with, uh, with the narcos. And so what Lopez Obrador wants to do is cut in there, offer on one hand, um, you know, massive scholarships to youth, you know, millions of scholarships to youth, either to study or to do apprenticeships at, at, at at businesses, and on the other hand, offer offer amnesty to you know lower and middle level um, operators, in, in order to give them you know a second chance to reincorporate themselves <coughs> into society. Now you can imagine how this can be used by the dominant media to disqualify them. So right now we're in the middle of this you know massive you know the ne negative campaigning against Lopez Obrador from these dominant television channels, and so they're trying they're saying that Lopez Obrador is soft on crime. He wants to let rapists out of jail. He wants to let kidnappers out of jail, assassins out of jail. We've got these, you know, these television uh, spots, um, you, know, you know, like it's similar, obviously, probably even written by the same guys who did this classic, you know, the Willie Horton spot against, uh, I remember, I don't know if you, you, you're probably much younger than me, Eric, but I, there was, there's this classic um, a spot against Michael Dukakis, right? I think it was probably 88 or 92 or something like that, in which they associated him with uh, a guy called Willie Horton who was left let out of jail on furlough and then, you know, the, uh, committed some court of crime, I don't know if it was a rape or a robbery. And um, he was associated very much with sort of racialized, racist terms with this guy, and that apparently had a, a serious damage on his his political career and he lost the elections. And so they're trying to do the same kind of things, right? They're trying to uh, link Lopez Obrador to crime and criminality through these proposals. But actually what he's doing is really breaking the narrative of, you know, of, of war on crime and violence against violence and trying to think about, you know, recuperating um, a peace through a, a, a more consensual process of, of social negotiation and change. So, um, that's what he's talking about. And there are lots of concrete sort of more technocratic prop, um, proposals as well. But the, the general framework for what he's proposing, uh, I think, is very important and, and is on the table right now. And it's on the table for the elections. People are going to be voting on this in, in next week. One of the interesting things about his position, though, is that it, 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 it really cuts to a number of key issues that I think are at the heart of the whole drug war, uh, primarily that that this is not exclusively a social issue, because uh, we have, from the United States perspective, we have billions of dollars flowing into Mexico under the auspices of things like the Merida Initiative, which is the, I guess you could say, the Mexico version of Plan Colombia, shipping 
giving billions of dollars worth of, uh, you know, security infrastructure and advisors and all of the other usual stuff that the imperial system likes to festoon upon its uh, satraps. Uh, and, and so we're talking billions of dollars here, billions of dollars that could potentially be at stake if uh, the country takes a hard shift to the left and rethinks its so-called drug war strategy. So can you talk a little bit about the financial aspect and how it relates to the U.S. and its policy towards Mexico? Yes, definitely. I mean, you're cutting Mexico deciding to end the drug war and to also um, stop uh, working as the you know extension of the U.S. Border Patrol, which is the other side of this. You know, Mexico has recently been you know militarizing and uh, not quite building a wall yet, but almost in the southern border between Mexico and and, and Guatemala but really sort of cracking down on those Central American immigrants trying to do the dirty work for the United States. And so if the if Mexico, you know, you don't need a, you know, a you know, radical uh, ideological proposal. Um, if you just, you know, recuperate Mexican sovereignty and you end the drug war and you end this kind of um, dirty work on the migration side, um, you're going to be uh, really changing the relationship with Mexico and the United States. Um, the United States might freak out, you know, um, uh, Trump likes to likes to do that, um, start to, to to threaten Mexico with all sorts of things. But um, if if Lopez Obrador has, uh, you know, the you know if he really gets in with this with significant support, if the polls are right, if he gets fifty percent of the vote, for instance, we'll have really for the first time in decades uh, a president who has the mass support of his own people. And that will make him a strong president. And uh, Lopez Obrador is very kind of, uh, in the end, quite responsible and in, in the way and, and and mature now after so much experience in politics. So I don't think he's going to try to pick fights with the United States or Trump. He said uh, explicitly in his speeches that he gave to the United States last year. He did a whole tour of the United States, went to L.A., San Francisco, New York, Chicago, a dozen a dozen cities in the United States, the most important city in the United States. Um, he gave uh, a whole series of speeches, which are, have been uh, published now as a book, and uh, he's really appealing to the the Trump base, you know, kind of the Bernie Sanders strategy, right? So he's going, you know, saying, look, Trump is lying to you. It's not the Mexicans are not the, 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 the problem. These are the scapegoats. But the real issue is the question of, you know, inequality, plutocracy. And um, you know neoliberal politics on both sides of the of the of the Rio Grande. You know? So, uh, um, so if he does that effectively, um, he might actually be able to you know run right around Trump and 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 become uh, a, a real leader not only of, of Mexico but of North America and, and and a world leader. I think there's a real possibility for this. Um, Mexico this wouldn't be the first time that Mexico is you know at the vanguard of you know international political. Transformation. The Mexican Revolution, 1910, was the first grand social revolution of the 20th century. Um, the Zapatistas in 1994 uh, were, you know, a, a world-shaking uh, a movement and event. Uh, and this, you know, seemingly very kind of simple, just sort of a democratic election with this, you know, humble, down-to-earth, uh, um, Roosevelt-type social democratic president in Mexico could also ironically, have uh, um, uh, larger consequences, especially if he uh, is successful, for instance, in, you know, uh, I'm forgetting my, my, my English adjectives, but of, you know, going, uh, really outpacing um, Trump and becoming the leader for North America and the world. That would be 
that would be kind of fun, no, for people to, you know, world leaders when they come to visit North America. Well, actually, you know, the World Cup, right? North America has now won the World Cup. Well, the United States gets most of the games, but still, there's Mexico. So you get the world leaders coming into North America, and then let's have their first stop be in Mexico City before they go to Washington. That would be kind of fun, no? I, it would be more than fun. It would really, re- it would, it would really represent, uh, you know, a return to some sanity. But, but be that as it may, um, can you tell us a little bit about how the uh, the the left in Latin America in in recent years has been used as a as a cudgel, distorted though it is, as a cudgel against uh, Lopez Obrador? I mean, you hear about the viciously, you know, anti-Chavez, anti-Bolivarian type uh, propaganda that is used as a weapon against. Obrador in this election that he wants that he wants to be like Chavez. He wants to turn Mexico into Venezuela, although that in and of itself is kind of a mixed uh, a mixed metaphor in 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 more ways than one. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the use of Chavez and Morales and and uh, Cuba and some of these other uh, parts of Latin America as a weapon against Amlo in the election? It's this guy actually just got out of a interview this afternoon with Jorge Ramos. Uh, um, you can check it out on on, on Sunday, and, and Jorge just put the, a recording of, while he was interviewing me, he, he hadn't told me he could do this, but during the interview, he put the, a, a speech by Lopez Obrador um, celebrating the leadership of, of Fidel Castro, right? And he said, hey, look, this is evidence that uh, Lopez Obrador is, a, is just another Castro or a Chavez, right? Um, and this is just wrong. I mean, we, we, should, we need to talk about Cuba and Venezuela on its own terms, of course. Uh, we can't buy into this um, terrible, uh, uh, you know, yellow journalism about both those countries. But um, regardless of, of what thinks about those countries, Mexico and Lopez Obrador is, is very much of its own case. Uh, you know, you, even back historically, right? So look, we can look at, you know, the classic populisms of the 30s and the 40s. Um, there's, to, in my mind, at least, there's very little comparison uh, um, between Lázaro Cárdenas, uh, our great, uh, you know, the president, uh, welfare state president in the 30s in Mexico, and someone like Perón, for instance, in Argentina. Um, you know, they occupy a similar historical space, and some of their policies are sim- are you know parallel. Uh, but in fact, their leadership styles and their ways of of understanding politics are radically different. You know, so. So Perón, for instance, was uh, his first job was as Secretary of Labor in an openly fascist government in Argentina. Uh, um, he always had uh, sort of fascist elements to his leadership style and his politics, allied with the rural oligarchy, for instance, uh, very much of a feudal um, system in the rural system in the countryside in Argentina. While in Mexico, uh, Lázaro Cárdenas was absolutely anti-fascist, even sent troops to defend the Spanish Republic in the Spanish Civil War, while the French and the British and the Americans were turning their backs uh, um, and sort of you know letting Franco come uh, uh, come into power. Uh, Cárdenas uh, went out there and, and supported the Republicans and took in a huge amounts of the, of the first the children and then the fighters themselves of the Republicans in Mexico itself. And so I'm getting too deep into history, but the the the, the point there is that Mexico has this, has this very rich rich um, you know uh, 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 I wouldn't say unique. I mean every country is unique, but it's a very special history. And when Lopez Obrador talks about the heroes and the examples which inspires him, he doesn't talk about. You know, he respects, of course, Castro and, and, and other world leaders, 
but uh, his models are, you know, the great leaders of Mexican independence, este, Hidalgo Morelos, Benito Juarez, este, the great liberal of the 19th century, Francisco de Madero, the one who started the Mexican Revolution, Lázaro Cardoz themselves. Um, that's the tradition that he draws from uh, and what he's looking to do. And so uh, um, objectively, ideologically, he has no relationship to um, the Bolivarian Revolution or to communist leadership in, in, in China. He's not a communist. He's not a reader of Marx. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's some sort of, uh, you know, patsy or, you know, uh, um, weakling who's just going to uh, bend over to the power of oligarchy and neoliberalism. No, he has this sort of very powerful strain of dignity and justice and social participation, which comes up from the Mexican Revolution and is very much present today still in Mexican political culture. And that's what explains his his popularity today. And that and that strain of, you know, of resistance and dignity um, from from below, um, if it breaks through to the top, like it might happen this July 1st, could have um, very positive uh, results. But um, once again, we'll have to talk again after July 1st, Eric. <laughs> and I and I and I hope we will. And part of the reason why is to obviously to evaluate what happened in the election, but also because part of the reason why, in my view, the election in Mexico is so critical this time is actually much more than Lopez Obrador himself. It is the fact that Latin America as a whole is in many ways at a crossroads. Over uh, the previous 15-20 years, we had the pink tide, as you mentioned earlier, the the rise of social democratic leftist socialist leadership, obviously uh, Chavez in Venezuela, but of course Morales in Bolivia, even social democratic leadership in Lula and and, and the People's Party or the Workers' Party in Brazil, in Nicaragua, elsewhere. We've seen that. But in recent years, we've seen a resurgence of the right backed by the United States. We see this in Argentina with the rise of Mauricio Macri. We saw this with the electoral coup in Brazil uh, and in, in other and in um, Peru and elsewhere. We have this kind of ongoing conflict between left and right now, where the right seems to be resurgent in 2012, 2013, 2014, and now we may be seeing the tide shifting once again back to the left as Lula tries to re-enter politics, of course, the whole legal ramifications of what's going on with him and his prison sentence and so forth. But regardless, we do see a resurgence of the left in Brazil. We do see the Bolivarian Revolution in many ways in crisis, but still holding holding on in Venezuela. We see a crisis in Nicaragua. In many ways, Latin America is at this incredible crossroads, a historical moment. And now the attention turns to Mexico. At the very same moment, a left-wing candidate emerges in Mexico that a right-wing candidate, a far-right candidate, wins in Colombia. So can you talk a little bit about the regional dynamics here? And do you think that, in in a sense, Mexico and López Obrador becomes a vanguard of a resurgent left? Well, you got it, Eric. I think I need to interview you next time. Um, <laughs> come down to, to Mexico, and I'll, I'll interview on my on my on my TV show that TV Nam. That that was a fantastic analysis, Eric. I, I I think that's the case. The thing is that Mexico, like I mentioned, has been left out of of this experimentation, this pink wave, um, this uh, uh, movement towards the left over the last 20, 30 years. Every single country in Latin America, except for Colombia and Mexico, have found a uh, you know a political electoral route to channel this discontent and this hope for you know a different uh, kind of program. 
um, of course, recently these these governments have been uh, suffering counterattacks, uh, as you mentioned, uh, in Argentina and Brazil, uh, Paraguay, Honduras, uh, Venezuela itself is, is in a difficult situation today. And so um, it's about time for uh, Mexico to, you know, if before it was left out of the pink tide, now, you know, it, it's moment for Mexico to sort of compensate down the other side, right? Now that there's the shift right, um, Mexico's shifting left. Uh, and so um, the, the thing is that Mexico is a very important country in Latin America. And for a long time, you know, it's the second largest country after Brazil. Uh, and it's 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 it being out, left out of this sort of political generalized political process of Latin America has led it led to its isolation uh, um, or apparent isolation from uh, uh, Latin American politics and people in South America started to think of Mexico as kind of a lost cause, you know, uh, uh, nothing's happening in terms of left politics, um, NAFTA. Uh, was signed, and you know the Mexican economy is increasingly close to the United States. Now you had all have all these sellout presidents. Uh, um, you know now we're just at the extreme of of ridiculous foreign policy with our foreign minister Luis Videgaray, who's this you know MIT technocrat, um, thinking that he's going to get something out of Trump by negotiating with Jared Kushner. That's his great you know supposed uh, contact with the Trump government, and he's friends with Jared Kushner. Uh, um, but basically, Mexico has just given up any kind of sovereignty. And so people had just sort of given up on Mexico. This was, you know, we're out of the game. But all of a sudden, for Mexico to come back into play in Latin American politics and come back into this role of mediating between the United States and Mexico and, and the rest of Latin America, um, I think is a, a real hopeful moment. And this could this could send shockwaves, I think, you know, towards the United States, the Mexican migrant population in the United States. You know, you guys have... Over 30 million people of Mexican heritage in the United States, in addition to other Latinos and, Hisp and Hispanics. And, you know, this would be a big example to South America as well, of course, for, for Lula and the rest. It would be a big inspiration. And so um, let's keep our fingers crossed and keep in touch, Eric. I, I got I to gotta get back to, to work. You can imagine I'm, I'm pretty busy these days. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a that's a that's a great ending point for us. There's a lot more to talk about and hopefully we can have you back on to talk about what happened in the election. Again, listeners, I highly recommend John Ackerman's work. Uh, follow him on Twitter at John M. Ackerman and on Facebook at Dr. John M. Ackerman. Uh, and of course, all of his columns in Proceso Magazine, La Jornada and in many other English language publications as well. John Ackerman, thanks so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Wonderful. Uh, real pleasure and honor. We'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Listeners, thank you as always, and I'll chat with you again real soon.